Well, we're in our final sermon in the book of James, and James confronts us with a really important question. How do we respond when someone does something wrong in our community? This is a crucial question for us as individuals. It's an important question for us as a church family, but it's also a really important question for us as a wider society, because our society does not do well when people make a mistake. Um, a year or so back, I was writing an article in Evangelicals Now looking at the phenomenon of internet shaming. In traditional cultures, they were honor-shame cultures. And so when someone got something wrong in a traditional ancient culture, then the community would shame them and they would often be cast out from that community. Today, we like to think of ourselves as an individualistic culture. We're based on merit. But it's been increasingly noted by many commentators the way that the internet and social media actually responds according to the normal rules of honour and shame. In fact, the, the way that honour and shame works in traditional cultures is mirrored in our internet culture today. So think of what happens. Step one, the call out. The unfortunate person who's done something wrong wakes up to a flurry of tweets and retweets and posts calling them out on their error. Step two, the shame storm. Cue retweets and reposts from everyone of the offensive um, words or posts that they've said and everyone shaming them and calling them out on what they've done wrong. Step three, the cancel. Unable to cope with the weight of shame that's coming on them, they either take their account offline or, or suddenly brands um, join in to cancel them and to denounce them and to say that they have no part anymore. Just like shaming in a traditional culture, casting them out of the community. Then some time passes with them cast out of the internet community and then after that comes step four, the statement. After some time of um, appropriate penance, they then have to write a statement of um, appropriate contrition, usually do something, give some money to charity or something to show people that they really are sincere. And then people from within inside the internet community vouch for them and say things like, well, they didn't really mean it, they're really sincerely apologetic again. Um, classic in traditional cultures of a person who's honoured going out to the person who's dishonoured and trying to bring them back in. And then step five, the legacy, they are forever remembered as the person who wrote that shameful post in September 2017 or whatever it is. Internet shaming. And notice how different that is to the dynamics of restoration and forgiveness. So a key question for us in this culture that we live in is, are we, as individuals, people who could do restoration and forgiveness? How do we do that? Or do we just buy into the culture at large and when someone gets it wrong, we cancel them, we shame them, that's it for them. They're out the community. And implicitly we communicate that you have to be perfect. And that puts a huge pressure on everyone. Well, two ways in this passage that we're going to see that we do restoration and really important for us as individuals, as society and also as a church. Firstly, restoration through prayer. Secondly, restoration through confession. Let's look firstly at restoration through prayer. James starts by looking at our spiritual health and he urges us to pray. And he's contrasting it with what he's just said in the other bits of chapter 5, where he's been looking at different responses, both to things when they're going badly and also to things when they're going well. And he's noted there that when things go badly, there's a pressure that comes on us to grumble and to moan about it. And when things go well, we're so prone to boast and make bold plans about it and to be self-sufficient. And he says, by contrast of grumbling, or boasting, both of which cause disunity 
in any community or context. He says we should pray. Verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. So rather than grumbling when things are going badly, pray. Rather than boasting when things are going well, sing songs of praise. That is, give thanks to God. And of course, nothing deals with the sin of grumbling or proud boastfulness than the wonderful um, joy of prayer. In prayer, we acknowledge, I can't do this myself, God, and we call out to God, and that chases away our grumbling hearts. In prayer, we acknowledge that actually these are gifts given by God, and so we don't boast in ourselves, we give thanks and praise to him. Then having looked at our spiritual health, James now looks at our physical health, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elder of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. Now, a few things to say about these verses because they are often misunderstood. First of all, the reference here to elders is just reference to uh, those who are designated in some sense as leaders in the early church. Notice it's elders, plural, it's not just one elder. So this is not necessarily saying that just the vicar or the ordained person has to go and visit the sick, though certainly that is an important part of any ordained person's ministry. But in talking about elders, it would be talking about here and inspire of what we talk about as our leadership team. We acknowledge they are elders and deacons. And also the way we view our Inspire Group leaders, they are elders in the way that they teach and exercise spiritual oversight of Inspire Groups. So this is reminding us that a really important ministry is not just to minister the word of God to people, but also to minister to people's physical needs. If someone is sick or in need, we've got to meet those needs as a community. Pray for one another. And that's a really important part of our ministry team, our leadership team and our Inspire Groups. Secondly, what about the oil that's mentioned here? Well, we need to understand that in the first century, oil was a normal part of medicine. So in the Good Samaritan, you might remember that the Good Samaritan goes to the um, traveller who's in need and he takes to him wine and oil. Now, that's not because he's going to have a picnic. The wine is a disinfectant for the man's wounds and the oil is a healing balm of restoration, probably olive oil, that was used commonly as a natural form of medicine. In other words, this is saying as you pray for someone, also let them get medical care. Notice it's not saying that because we're dealing with it through supernatural means, through prayer, that they don't need natural means, medicine. Nor is it saying that because they're getting help naturally through medicine that they don't need the intervention of prayer. Both are needed because we live in an integrated world under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And secondly, oil also has a spiritual significance. The anointing of oil implies restoration through the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at that in the second point where we see restoration through confession. So I don't think this is saying that we have to use oil today. After all, it's not a particularly common part of medicine. Certainly, there's no warrant here for special vials of consecrated oil. And this was something in the first century, and we need to translate it into our context appropriately. If you want to use oil, that's fine. But there's no particular efficacy to the oil. Rather, the efficacy is the prayer and the medical help alongside it. Those are the things we need to focus on. Thirdly, what do we make here of the prayer offered in faith, or is it sometimes translated the prayer of faith? 
Now, quite often, this is taken as some kind of special prayer. Either the prayer of faith denotes a way that you pray, a prayer claiming something in faith. So you say it boldly and confidently, I have the faith to believe that there is going to be healing in this situation. There doesn't seem any warrant for that from this text. Um, nor is it about the prayer of faith saying you have to have a particular amount of faith, as though the healing was dependent on the amount of faith that someone has. That is a dangerous teaching because that of course implies the counterfactual which is if someone doesn't get healed then that was because they didn't have enough faith and I know of many people who've been shipwrecked in their belief in God because they've thought that that has what's happened. No this is not about how much faith you have or how you pray with a particular style. This is about who you have faith in. After all if God, as James says, is the father of heavenly lights, the one who created all things, created the stars above, then he has the power, does he not, to heal someone. So when you pray, believe that. Now, of course, there is no promise that God will heal people this side of the new creation, but he is able to. And we need to believe that he can do it, whilst in faith also holding humbly that he is the sovereign Lord, he is all wise, Sometimes he heals people miraculously, praise the Lord for that. Sometimes he heals people through natural means of the NHS, praise God for that. Tragically, as we're all too aware under coronavirus, sometimes people aren't healed. That is not due to a fault in them or due to a fault in our prayers. It is his sovereign will as the father of lights who is infinitely wise. So just a few words about that. Therefore, the point of saying the prayer of faith is to point us to God's power. And that's the illustration that he comes up to in verse 16 and 17 with Elijah. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. James here is encouraging us with the power of prayer for reconciliation through the example of Elijah. In 1 Kings, Elijah was facing a situation where many, many people were turning away from God and turning to the false idol of Baal, the Canaanite god. And as a result of that, um, God prompted Elijah to pray that the rain would be held from the land so there would be no harvest and that that would bring the people as smelling salts um, to bring people to their senses. And then there was the confrontation between God and the false gods of Baal on, the, on Mount Carmel. And if you remember Elijah, um, the false prophets of um, uh, the idol Baal prayed and prayed and cut themselves and whipped themselves up into a frenzy, trying to get fire from heaven to consume their sacrifices, and nothing happened. And then Elijah calmly, with the prayer offered in faith, trusting that God was able to do it, prayed to God and the fire fell from heaven and consumed his sacrifices and all the people in Israel suddenly confessed the Lord he is God the Lord he is God and there was restoration and then Elijah prayed to God to restore the land with rain and because he's trusting the power of God God did in other words Elijah is a picture of the power of prayer and the power of prayer for restoration the people were restored to trust in God and that's the aim Similarly, a man called John Chrysostom, with the great name Chrysostom means golden mouth in the original, has written this about prayer. The potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. 
It has bridled the rage of lies, hushed anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the fates of heaven, assuaged diseases, dispelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. There is in prayer an all-sufficient panoply, a treasure undiminished, a mine which is never exhausted, a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storms. It is the root, the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings. The power of prayer. So for us, the application has to be that if there's a situation where there's tension in relationships, where we're longing for restoration, have we prayed about it? Too often I, I'm conscious that in my own heart and I see in the lives of other people that we use our tongues to talk about the situation. We grumble to our friends, I can't believe they've done this. Can you believe how they've treated me? We grumble in our internal narrative um, as we rehearse the wrong. I can't believe they did this to me, how they treated me. But we don't use our tongues to pray to God that it would be restored. Please, Lord, restore this relationship. Please, Lord, help me to see what I've done wrong in this. Give me a forgiving heart. Please, Lord, help them to see what they've done wrong in this. Work for unity and restoration. Rather than rehearsing our hurt or just reporting it to other people in a destructive way, we need to seek restoration and take it to God in prayer. Restoration through prayer. Secondly, restoration through confession. Now, James does something a little uncomfortable here for us in our passage, which is he seems to tie the physical sickness of what's going on in the situation then to sin and confession. And immediately our minds kick up and we say, well, hang on, isn't there explicit in the Bible that there is no link between sin and a person being ill? Doesn't Jesus say in John chapter 9, when he's confronted with a man born blind, that neither this person nor his parents sinned that he was born blind? So what is James doing? Well, it is true that generally speaking, um, we can't tie uh, sin and confession of sin to particular physical um, illness or injury. You know, it's not karma. We're not teaching that a person, you know, sinned and therefore that's why they're in a wheelchair. That's a pernicious teaching that the Bible is very explicit in, um, in refuting. But on the other hand, it is sometimes true, isn't it? that actually sin, um, illness or sickness is caused by a particular wrongdoing or moral failure or sin. I just think on a trivial level, someone goes out and they get drunk and they sin in that way and they wake up in the morning with a hangover feeling sick. The sickness is tied to their misbehavior the night before, isn't it? And sometimes it is also true that in sickness or in injury, the Lord is disciplining us because he is sovereign over all things. He's wanting to bring us to our senses. So in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks to the Corinthian church about the unworthy way that they've been taking the Lord's Supper. And he says that the Lord is disciplining you and making you sick. He writes this, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why so many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. 1 Corinthians 11, 29 to 31. Well, similarly here, do you notice in verse 15 how James links their physical health and spiritual health? He says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. 
So he does seem to be suggesting that some of the physical illness that people in James's context are experiencing is tied to their sin. Now let me say a bit about what's going on here, I think, in the wider letter and how this functions. In the letter of James, there seem to be, generally speaking, two groups of people James addresses, and he, he uses a very different tone of voice for them and different ways of addressing them. The first group is the wider church. He calls them my brothers and sisters or my dear brothers and sisters. And whilst he warns them about falling into sin, he generally does that with a gentleness and a clear sense of pastoral care. So, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Chapter 1, verse 19. My brothers and sisters, believe in our believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Chapter 2, verse 1. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Chapter 2, verse 14. So that's one group. That's the wider group of the church. Then there seems to be another group, a kind of subsection within this group, a smaller group within the church, and James refers to them with a much stronger tone and calls them to repent. He's harder on them um, with his tone, and he often refers to them as someone may say or someone among you. So, for example, chapter 2, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is dead? Or what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Chapter 4, verse 1. Or now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Chapter 4, verse 13 to 14. And in the course of this letter, we learn that this smaller group of people within the church, these someone may say, are those who are double-minded. That is, they say they have faith, they're very confident in their faith, but they're not living it out with their deeds. They're people who claim to be wise and actually think they should be teaching, but actually James says that your lives show that you're foolish because there's not an integrity of life there. And specifically, he calls them out on speaking in ungodly and divisive ways, on their lack of care and concern for the poor and the vulnerable, and in fact, the way that they prioritize the rich over the poor, and the way that they're worldly and they grumble and have worldly concerns. And a big part of James's task is to warn these people and to call them to repentance. And also at the same time to warn the wider church not to become like them, particularly under the challenge of suffering, but to stand firm and keep being godly. So if there is this group within the church or the churches that James is writing to, what would you expect? Well, James is clearly expecting that the Lord will have been at work through his letter, working by the Spirit to convict these people of their sin so that they want to confess their sin and seek restoration. And so as he lands the letter in chapter 5, he tells us practically how you restore someone or how you restore a group of people who are caught in sin. Restoration through prayer and restoration through confession. So look at verse 16. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Or verse 19, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So notice three ways that James says restoration happens with someone who's been in sin and now suddenly by the power of the Holy Spirit feels convicted and wants to be restored. First thing, they need to confess their sins to God. 
And we do this every Sunday at church because it's such a vital practice. And we want to be modeling that so that this is something that we do regularly in our lives. All of life is repentance, Martin Luther the Reformer famously wrote. And therefore we need to confess our sins to God. And notice the character of this confession. As you confess your sins to God, there's no minimizing. That is saying, well, it wasn't that bad. God will forgive me after all, that's his job. There's no um, deflecting. Oh, it's not me, it's them. I mean, they're worse than me, aren't they? Pointed the finger over there. There's no catastrophizing. You're right, I'm awful. Oh, there's no hope for me, I'm, I'm terrible. Which just makes it about you rather than about how you've wronged other people and God. There's no defending. How dare you talk to me that way? I've not done anything wrong. Don't speak to me like that. What do you think this is? You see, instead, there is an authentic, honest owning of what you've done wrong and how it has hurt and offended God. I'm sorry, Lord. I've wronged you. I've damaged my relationship with you and with other people. Please forgive me. Confessing to God. Secondly, and perhaps more uncomfortably for us, confession to one another. If we find the first part difficult, confessing to God, we find this very, very challenging in our, con our culture. Confess your sins to each other, verse 16. You see, if we've wronged one another, we need to confess that to God. But it's not just enough to confess that to God. We need to seek restoration and reconciliation with other people. And we need to say sorry to the people we have wronged. Can I say, in our cancel culture, in our culture of internet shaming, this is so rare. And tragically, in my experience in church, it's often rare as well. Too often, we expect that when someone gets something wrong, that we will leave that friendship or maybe even leave that church because it's now too awkward or they won't confess their sins, they will just try to tough it out and pretend that it wasn't such a big deal and hope that the problem will kind of go away. We're not going to learn restoration through confession from the world but we must practice it in our lives. Be quick to say sorry to one another. If we've said sorry to God and received forgiveness from him, we can be confident as we go and say sorry to one another. Be quick to not talk to other people about it, but gently and in love to seek restoration. Go to another person and say, when you said that, that really hurt, or when you did this, that hurt, and I'm not here to condemn you, but I want my relationship with you restored. You see, here's the deal. We love the ideal of community, but the reality of community requires a dynamic of forgiveness and restoration that is too often lacking. So many people, they love the ideal of community, but the reality is they can't do confession and forgiveness, and so community just disperses and breaks up at the first sign of trouble. But community is forged over forgiveness, over working through problems together. Then you have a shared history. You build trust with one another. You love one another through thick and thin. Confess your sins to one another. So confess to God, confess to one another, and lastly, pray for one another. Pray for each other to have a heart of forgiveness. Pray for one another to be restored. When you know there's tension in another relationship, pray for them. Pray for unity in our church family here. A unity that can't just be described because they're people who have the same interests and they were friends anyway. But unity that is worked through because we're in the body of Christ and we're committed to one another just as he is committed to us. Well, you say, all oh, this sounds lovely, but how do we do this? Well, the truth is forgiveness is really hard. 
And the forgiveness you give is proportional to the forgiveness you've received from Christ. Let me say that again. The forgiveness you give will be proportional to the forgiveness you have received from Jesus Christ. You can only really forgive if you've been forgiven. As you look at Jesus on the cross, you say, I am so sinful that he had to die for me. There was no other way. And yet I'm so loved that he was prepared to die for me and forgive me and restore me. You see, here's the reality. When we grasp the seriousness of our sin, then suddenly we stop being so self-righteous and condemning of other people because we say, I'm a sinner too. I need to be forgiven too. And when we grasp God's grace that he was prepared to forgive us, then it sets in motion a dynamic of grace and restoration in our lives. You see, in the Old Testament, in an honour-shame culture, when someone got something wrong, it was normal in the cultures of the time to excommunicate them, to cast them outside of the community. And then they would be outside the community for a while, and if they were fortunate, they might be restored and brought back in after a period with some great display of contrition and penance. And in the Old Testament context, the high priest would put um, symbolically his hands on a goat and he would confess the sins of the people over the goat and then that goat would be cast out of the community. That was the scapegoat. And as the goat was cast out, so the people who had done something wrong could be brought in. Well, in the New Testament, similarly, we're told that Jesus Christ was crucified outside the city walls. He was the scapegoat for all of our sin. He was shut out so that we might be brought in. God turned his back on him as Jesus was treated with dishonour and shame on the cross so that we might be forgiven and so that we might be restored. He was cosmically, if I can put it like this, cancelled on the cross, dying for us so that we might be restored and forgiven and reintegrated back into God's family. And if we get that, then that dynamic of forgiveness and grace becomes like a river flowing through our community, giving life and reconciliation where there is guilt and where there is offence. So how do we respond as a community when someone gets something wrong or when we get something wrong? Do we cancel? Do we shame? Do we grumble? No, because Jesus has forgiven us. We seek restoration through prayer and restoration through confession. And that grows us to become increasingly a united and diverse community inspiring London with the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel of grace that is the dynamic we need in our lives, the reality we need to believe and trust in if we are to be forgiving people in a forgiving community. Please help us to be good here and inspire St. James Clerkenwell, restoring one another, quick to say sorry, quick to forgive, quick to seek restoration. And might you knit us together as a community as we do that. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.